Hi everyone and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is September 1st, 2016. Today I'm joined by eminent scholar and Japan hand, Glenn Fukushima. Glenn is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. He's frequently in Tokyo and you see him around at all sorts of venues and events. Glenn, welcome. Thanks very much. Good to see you. It's good to see you. I see you all over town. You're sitting on boards of all of the right organizations. Dan Slater has the Delphi Network. I understand you're a board member there. That's a right. great organization. You're also on the board for the U.S.-Japan Council. Right. You're involved in a lot of things. Yeah, I'm uh, trying to keep out of trouble. You've been involved in Japan-U.S. relations for a long time. Ever since I've been in Japan, you've been here and you've, you've you're been... You're making me sound old. <laughs> well, um, you've, you've been doing it a long time. You've been at the American Chamber of Commerce of Japan. Right all over the place and at a very high level. Well, you know, I like uh, diversity. I like to be active and uh, I'm really interested in people. And so I get involved in a lot of organizations and I really enjoy it. I'm mm -hmm. now, you know, spending my time between Washington DC, San Francisco and Tokyo. And uh, every place I go, I, I just find interesting people, interesting issues. Well, you're an interesting person too. And, and people are, are captivated and, and follow you. People like me, people who have been involved in the U.S.-Japan relations for a long time. I mean, you're, you're one of the pinnacles of, I mean, there are a lot of people who have been thinking and writing books, Ezra Vogel, a lot of people that we know and we learn from. Mm -hmm. um, that generation is kind of gone. And, and there are really um, just a few people that are really kind of leading that charge. Mm. And uh, you're in Washington, D.C. Now you're greatly involved in the, the Clinton campaign, moving that, that ball forward. She's got a, an incredible foreign policy team. I think that's one of the strengths that she has. Tell us about what you're doing with her campaign. Sure. Well, I first met Hillary Clinton in 1992 in December at the Little Rock Economic Summit, which was held a month after Bill Clinton was elected president. And at that time, 92 campaign, you remember, it was the economy stupid. So right after he was elected, he had a conference in Little Rock, Arkansas, in which he invited about 200 people to talk about the economic issues facing the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. So I was with AT&T at the time, having just left USTR after five years in Washington, and based in Japan with AT&T. So I was invited, and they gave me 12 minutes to talk about economic developments in East Asia since the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. And as a result... Uh, Ron Brown offered me a job to be the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for International Economic Policy, which I turned down, but I was still interested in uh, what the Clinton administration was doing with uh, Asia in particular. So I followed her career since then, and I've been a big uh, admirer and supporter of hers. So when she ran uh, in 2008, I supported her, and then uh, this time around, I have uh, been uh, a supporter. I've gone to a number of events uh, supporting her and was with her at a dinner uh, with about 30 people in uh, Washington uh, just about a month ago. Right, I see on Facebook, I'm following you on Facebook, mm -hmm. you're always posting these these terrific photos and you're there with Bill Clinton or, or mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton and, and you're really engaged at, at a Yeah, two weeks ago I think there was an event in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, was, uh, actually, an Asian-American uh, political activist uh, invited representatives from uh, four uh, parties, uh, Democratic Party, Republican Party, Green Party, and uh, Libertarian Party. And so Bill Clinton came to represent Hillary, so I had a chance to see him there as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so I'm very encouraged by the Clinton campaign. November 8th is not very far away. Yeah, about 10 weeks, maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a, still a lot of fireworks to be had? Well, you know, there's going to be presidential debates on TV. And so uh, since Donald Trump uh, makes it a point to be unpredictable, I'm sure we'll see some unpredictable, in, unpredicted happenings. Mm -hmm. What do you predict is going to happen uh, between now and then? I mean, uh, he is on a roll. And it seems like he's really going for the populist sentiment in the United States, and mm -hmm. he's scoring big points. He's not scoring very many points uh, internationally, though. 
Well, I think uh, there is a kind of a bifurcation between uh, the domestic situation in the U.S. And, and abroad, as you say, but also even within the United States, I think it's really interesting that if you look at like the New York Times, they're now predicting about a 90% to 10% probability of Hillary Clinton winning. I think the real clear politics polls that, that look at uh, seven major polls, uh, six of them have uh, Hillary leading, one has Trump leading. But the overall difference, I think, is 47.6 versus 41.6. So it's uh, uh, Clinton has a, uh, I think, a, a five-point advantage. So I think the uh, the polls show Clinton leading. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's true that uh, Donald Trump is kind of tapping into some of the populist um, anger, fear, frustration uh, about jobs and about uh, dysfunctional uh, Washington and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah, it's. Uh, but the other factor too is that, as you know, many kind of established Republicans. Are, are not supporting Trump. Uh, you know, Hank Paulson, former Secretary of Treasury, Richard Armitage, former Secretary, uh, former Deputy Secretary of State, uh, Bob Zelig, a former um, U.S. Trade Representative, uh, a whole slew. I think uh, uh, Michael Hayden, for the, he, former head of the CIA. A lot of people have come out with statements either saying they can't support Trump or that they're supporting Clinton. Um, Susan Collins, the Republican Senator from Maine, had a big op-ed piece in the piece in the Washington Post saying that she cannot support. Uh, Trump and um, Meg uh, Whitman, former uh, CEO of eBay, now CEO of uh, Hewlett Packard, who used to, you know, ran for governor of uh, California and lost as a Republican, also came out in support of Hillary. So, I think Hillary's picking up a lot of uh, standard mainstream Republicans. Mm -hmm. That I think Trump is getting a lot of people who are um, dissatisfied with the status quo and uh, uh, and not necessarily even Republicans, but they want someone to kind of represent their anger and frustration and, and, and uh, desire for change. Yeah, she had a terrific foreign policy speech just recently that I think really boosted her numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, she was Secretary of State. Yeah, and, and, so, so. and she has a yeah. uh, very good foreign policy advisor. So certainly on foreign policy, uh, she is more informed than Donald Trump. But Donald Trump yeah. has, you know, all these kind of interesting ideas. <laughs> and so uh, they attract a lot of attention. You know, I remember seeing him on a TV program, Chris Matthews uh, had him on a TV program in which um, Chris, Chris Matthews said, uh, so are, are you considering using nuclear weapons in Europe? And uh, Trump says, I don't take anything off the table. I don't take anything off the table. Um, that kind of surprised a lot of people. And then when uh, someone asked him about uh, U.S. commitments to NATO, he said, well, you know, we'll have to see whether these NATO countries are, you know, paying their fair share. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, on Japan and, and South Korea, he has said that um, they need to pay up more for the defense. And uh, he also has uh, hinted that he wouldn't uh, care that much if they were to eventually have nuclear weapons. And so, I mean, he's saying a lot of interesting things. Interesting things. I mean, uh, it does reveal a little bit of not so much depth on, in knowledge in U.S.-Japan relations or, or the role that Japan plays in actually paying for those those mm -hmm. U.S. forces being here. Right. But one of the issues that I think has, has triggered a lot of attention here in Tokyo is TPP sure. and the kind of swaying back and forth, right. especially on the, the, mm -hmm. in the Clinton campaign, yep. uh, going for TPP or pulling back from TPP. Right. And you're basically a trade guy, right? Well, I spent five years at USTR, so I do follow trade issues pretty carefully. And mm -hmm. on TPP, it's really interesting because there are a lot of things that were not predicted for this year's election. Obviously, one is the rise of Donald Trump. Another is the rise of Bernie Sanders. But the third issue, I think, which really was not predicted last year, was how important trade has become as an issue. And I think probably summer of last year, uh, for instance, you know, I think uh, uh, Donald Trump announced in uh, June that he's running. Uh, Hillary Clinton announced in April that she's running. Around that time, 
you know, trade really wasn't such a yeah. hot issue. But as time went on, uh, especially with Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump criticizing NAFTA and also TPP, it became one of the major issues. Mm -hmm. And um, it's true. I mean, Hillary Clinton, when she was uh, Secretary of State, uh, while the TPP negotiations were taking place before it came to a conclusion in Atlanta last year in October, uh, she did say that she hoped that TPP would be the gold standard of trade agreements. Uh, but after the uh, agreement was reached and a lot of criticism was uh, heard not only by the two candidates, but also by labor unions, NGOs, MPOs, some members of Congress, some academics, uh, and Hillary Clinton took a look at the agreement, uh, she said, uh, she can't agree because of three standards or three um, criteria. She said uh, for her to support TPP, uh, she, she's asking, does it create jobs? Does it uh, increase wages? And does it enhance American national security? And as the agreement stands now, she finds that it doesn't uh, meet those standards. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think that during the lame duck session, uh, President Obama will try his very best to get the TPP ratified. Because obviously it's a major part of the Asia pivot or Asia rebalance that he announced in the first term. Um, so I think he will very much want to get it ratified. Um, whether it's possible or not, not 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 clear yet. Not much. And if left. it doesn't if it doesn't get through in the uh, lame duck session, then uh, the new administration will have to deal with it. Right. And which administration that'll be? Well, if it's the Trump administration, uh, uh, you know, he's had some mixed messages. On the one hand. He says uh, that uh, trade agreements like these are useless and, and, and uh, he would get rid of them. On the other hand, uh, sometimes he says that he would totally renegotiate. So uh, it may be that if it's Trump administration, he will try to tr totally renegotiate, but then probably that means that the other 11 countries will not go along. So in, in, in essence, it will die. Right. If it's a Clinton administration, uh, I think that she and the vice presidential candidate uh, Tim Kaine both of them, I think in principle, believe that trade agreements can be constructive and helpful, but the TPP as it stands now doesn't meet those standards. So if it's a Clinton administration, I think there may be an, a, a, uh, an attempt to try to modify and revise the agreement so that it does meet those three standards. Mm -hmm. What's your view on it? I mean, the Japanese were first totally against it, and then they've come back to center, and actually they're in support of TPP now. One of the, huh. one of the main beneficiaries of TPP is obviously Japan, but probably the primary beneficiary of a successfully implemented TPP is the United States. Well, I think the U.S. and Japan will both benefit. I think the agreement itself uh, will benefit all 12 of the countries. Mm -hmm. um, it's my understanding that I think there are six or seven of the 12 that require the legislatures of those countries to ratify. So uh, in Japan, probably in the diet session between late September and October, uh, most likely the TPP uh, will be ratified. And I think the discussion among the 12 countries has been that to the extent that these countries that have a requirement for the legislatures to approve, to the extent that they're able to get the TPP legislation approved, that that will help the U.S. administration persuade the U.S. Congress mm -hmm. to go along and ratify. So I think the hope in Japan is that this uh, ratification will take place before the U.S. election. On November 8th? Mm -hmm. No. That's a very aggressive schedule. Well, but I think in September, October, the plan is that it, it, it will uh, get through the Japanese diet mm -hmm. and perhaps some of the other legislatures, and the U.S. administration can use that as one argument to try to persuade members of Congress to go along to ratify mm -hmm. during the lame duck session, 
uh, between November 8th and the end of the year. Before we wrap up this session, Glenn, uh, you spend about half of your time in Tokyo, half of your time in D.C. or New York. Not quite. No, not yeah, quite? Yeah, 60% D.C., 15% San Francisco, 25% Tokyo. You're a lucky guy. <laughs> yeah, I like all three cities. Yeah. What's, what's kind of the, the hot items when you come to Tokyo? What are the things that people are really curious about? What do you, from your perspective, see as the, the issues that are kind of evolving that, that people well, need to be watching? Actually, I think you've hit on the two major issues mm-hmm. right now, the U.S. election and number two, TPP. Those are the two issues that a lot of people ask me about in mm-hmm. Japan. You heard it first here from Glenn Fukushima. Please stay tuned. We're going to follow up on these issues and report to you as they develop. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. I'm joined today by Glenn Fukushima, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. Welcome back, Glenn. Thanks, Tim. One of the things that people are keenly interested in is what the relationship between Japan and the United States might look like under a Clinton administration as opposed to a Donald Trump administration. Sure. Those two scenarios are vastly different. Right. Can you kind of look into the, the future glass and see okay. what that might look like? Sure. Well, I think with regard to the Hillary Clinton administration, it's reasonably safe to predict that there will be considerable continuity mm-hmm. between the Obama administration and the Clinton administration, in part because half of the Obama administration Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State. So I, I think that overall, the uh, Clinton administration would uh, value highly the U.S.-Japan security relationship, economic relationship, and uh, uh, consider Japan to be one of America's most important partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see any areas where there's going to be some radical departure or radical change. I think there may be some changes with regard to uh, U.S. approaches to North Korea and China, which could affect Japan. And so, uh, but with regard to Japan, U.S.-Japan itself, I don't see any, you know, huge differences. On the Donald Trump side, it's actually very difficult to predict for a variety of reasons. One is, it's not clear, uh, among the things he said he's going to do, it's not clear which ones he'll try to do. Number two, it's not clear if he tries to do them to what extent he'll be successful, because there are um, certain constraints of what he can do, whether it's the U.S. Congress or whether right. it's the American business community or it's the journal, uh, press or the WTO. Um, and so and the other thing about Trump that is difficult to know is it's not clear who he would appoint to various senior positions. And uh, obviously any administration will be influenced in part by the personalities of the you know senior positions, cabinet officers, deputy secretaries, undersecretaries assistant secretaries. In the case of Hillary Clinton, although there aren't specific names that uh, too many yet, uh, you, you kind of it's pretty much population. know. Because, right. you know, she was first lady for eight years. She was second senator. She was secretary of state. So, you know, pretty much the kind of parameters of mm-hmm. the people that she knows and she might appoint. In Donald Trump's case, he's never served in Washington. Uh, and uh, his, his contacts among the foreign policy crews seem to be very few. Right. <laughs> and so... The person he keeps mentioning in various speeches, I've heard, I mean, I've heard many, many of his, maybe 30 of his speeches, but one of the person he always uh, refers to is Carl Icahn, a businessman in New York. Billionaire. And uh, he seems to always, you know, kind of refer to him as saying, you know, you know, we really get the raw end of uh, trade agreements because our negotiators are so incompetent and so bad. But, you know, I know someone, Carl Icahn, who's a real tough negotiator and he knows what he's doing and he's not going to be hoodwinked, you know. So if Carl Icahn were 20 years younger, <laughs> I think Donald Trump might want to appoint him as a U.S. trade representative. But not clear, you know, who would mm-hmm. be Secretary of State, you know, Commerce, Defense. Uh, so that's another area of unpredictability about Donald Trump. But he has made certain statements about, in fact, 
On Japan, it's really interesting. I was asked by Chuo Kodo, a major monthly magazine in Japan, to write an article about Donald Trump about three months ago. So in, it came out that, into a series, didn't it? I actually did some research. Yes. And I found that in 1987, Donald Trump paid $95,000 to put ads, full-page ads in three, in three newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, basically arguing that uh, Japan is a free rider on, on defense, that they take our jobs, they only uh, export, they don't import, and they manipulate their currency. In 1988, he had a, a TV interview with Oprah Winfrey on her show. He said the exact same thing. 1990, he had an interview in Playboy magazine, said exactly the same thing. So what he's saying now is very consistent mm -hmm. what he's been saying for the last, you know, 30-some years. The only difference now is that he adds South Korea to the list. He has China to the list. He has uh, Vietnam, Mexico, Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. But his view of Japan seems to be very consistent. Right. I think one of the things that Americans are are weary of is a constant war, international uh, conflict that the United States is involved in. And then when the soldiers come back, they're not given, you know, f a fair shake and mm -hmm. maybe the VA is not treating them well. And it yep. really hits the news. And probably his foreign policy is more of let's, let's bring it back home. Mm -hmm. The money that we're spending externally, we don't need to be the international policemen. Mm -hmm. Let's kind of bring it in. I think that resonates with a lot of Americans. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's true. I think uh, he... Uh, he says, no, let's make America great again. And, but his making America great again uh, doesn't seem to be that the U.S. will play a leadership role right. in society. It's mm -hmm. more that the U.S. will have to take care of itself and let others fend for themselves. Right. The thing that's encouraging about Hillary Clinton is, you know, we live in Tokyo. We do business in Tokyo. The Japan-U.S. relationship is of paramount importance to people like me, American businessmen, doing business in Japan. And it's it's a hopeful thought that she will come in and, do more for international business, sure. more for foreign policy, yep. uh, more for the defense relationship, and help you know Japan get out of the, the doldrums that have been in you know a stagnant economy for 20 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. No, I know that uh, Hillary Clinton really values Japan. When she was Secretary of State in February of 2009, the first country she visited after becoming Secretary of State was Japan. And uh, in addition to meeting with then Prime Minister Aso and uh, Foreign Minister Nakasone, she did four things that I thought were very indicative of the fact that she was interested in Japan beyond just kind of the policy dialogue mm -hmm. was, number one, she visited Meiji Shrine. Number two, she had a dialogue with the students at Tokyo University. Right. Third, she met with the families of the uh, uh, abductees uh, from, of North Korea. Uh, and then fourth, uh, she um, uh, met with the empress mm -hmm. of Japan. So I think that it showed her breadth of interest in Japan, not just, you know, talking with her policy counterparts. Yeah. So I, I'm... As you say, I think she is very interested in uh, making sure that the U.S. Uh, continues to play an important role in world affairs. And having been Secretary of State, I think she really you know, has, has experienced the fact that there are a lot of countries around the world that depend on the United States to play some leadership. Mm -hmm. I remember when Bill Clinton became president, he mm -hmm. had two trips to Tokyo, mm -hmm. and the American Chamber of Commerce organized a briefing. You were at the head table. And it was, yeah. uh, uh, on several occasions, right. you've, you personally briefed not only the president, but the first lady as well. That's right. You, you, uh, you reminded me that actually when Bill Clinton was president, he visited Japan five times. And uh, of the five times, one was a 23-hour visit to attend the funeral of uh, Prime Minister Obuchi. Uh, another was to go to the Okinawa summit that P Prime Minister Mori was in charge of. But the other three trips, he came to Tokyo. And I think on every occasion, he met with the American Chamber. Yeah. I remember in July of 1993, he came for the Tokyo summit, and, uh, and uh, Miyazawa was then the prime minister. In October of 19, uh, November, October of 1998, 
I was the president of the chamber, and we hosted him at the Capital Tokyo Hotel, and about 400 people came. That was a really interesting session, I remember, because um, Charlene Barczewski was the U.S. Trade Representative, um, Dan Glickman was the Secretary of Agriculture, Bill Daly was Secretary of Commerce, Larry Summers was Deputy Secretary of Treasury, and I chaired a panel discussion among them over breakfast. And then when we finished with that panel discussion, then uh, President Clinton came and uh, gave a great speech. I remember that um, we had the, the panel discussion and the president was going to come. Everybody was waiting. You were kind of waiting yeah. to finish the panel discussion. Right. And the buzz, the the aura of him just in the vicinity. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he, he must have been 30 or 40 meters away. And you could just feel the electricity, just feel the air. It was yeah. Just an incredible thing. I mean, That's the power right. of the presidency, it really is an awesome thing. Right. And I, I did really appreciate uh, Bill Clinton and his administration in expressing a lot of interest in the American business community in Japan as well as elsewhere mm -hmm. in Asia. So I, I think the Hillary Clinton administration also will try to make sure that uh, the administration connects well with the business community, American business community in Japan. All right. And that fulcrum, that venue is the American Chamber of Commerce as it was back then. How effective is the American Chamber of Commerce in providing that kind of platform and that kind of venue for visiting dignitaries coming in, for example, the new president of the United States? I guess they would come to Tokyo two or three times during their administration. Right. Well, you know, I think that um, uh, the chamber uh, did a very good job. My sense is that before 9-11, uh, the uh, the U.S. Uh, administration really was focused on trying to promote American business interests abroad. After 9-11, my impression was that the administration really focused on so much on the war on terror, war on terrorism, that they kind of gave uh, business uh, issues uh, kind of uh, uh, backseat. And they were really focused on security cooperation mm -hmm. with Japan. But now, I think with TPP and with uh, all the economic activity taking place in Asia, I think there's a renewed interest in the United States on making sure the U.S. is engaged in Asia. And, and I think the chamber uh, is continuing to play a very important role. I think it can play a more enhanced role. Uh, and, I, and I hope that the chamber will you know, reach out to the administration to make sure that when senior people come, that the chamber can host them. Sure. I mean, that's a Benny for them. I mean, sure. it, it, they're able to facilitate the membership. They probably have uh, 3,000 members mm -hmm. leading... More, more than 3,000, yeah. yeah. Leading, Japan, uh, leading U.S. companies in, in Tokyo. That's a pretty big deal. You've done it on, on several occasions. Mm -hmm. No, I think the potential is, uh, is very much there. I mean, there, there are uh, challenges, obviously, because uh, uh, the Japanese market, uh, you know, the population is uh, declining, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there are other uh, growing and, and interesting markets. It's not so sexy anymore. Not not as much as back in the '90s, probably. Yeah, but uh, but still, I mean, there's a lot of potential here. Right, and I'm I'm reminded when you were talking about um, you know 9/11, and it, it is true that even the the accessibility of diplomats in the U.S. embassy really it stopped to a, a trickle, and and mm. even the embassy itself was kind of in lockdown mode. Mm -hmm. um, it used to be that the diplomats were all over the, the business community, all over Tokyo. You could run into them at all sorts of venues mm -hmm. and form relationships with them, mm -hmm. but that kind of really um, became somewhat restricted. I remember under uh, John Roos' administration, it was really hard to even send emails to hmm. colleagues that you had in, in the U.S. Embassy who were working on issues that you were, hmm. you were interested in. I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that um, the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan, as well as the companies, can really play an important role in trying to engage with Washington, engage with the embassy here 
and to make sure that there is a, a real partnership. Mm -hmm. Because I think that um, you know both sides, both the government and the business community, can learn from each other. And also, I think there's a potential real cooperation there on influencing outcomes in Japan, so that in Japan the regulations are eased and it's more easy for um, new entrants, especially foreign entrants, to engage in the Japanese market. Thank you. Talking about the differences a U.S.-Japan relationship might look like under a Clinton administration as opposed to a Trump administration, please stay tuned. Welcome back. Today I'm joined with Glenn Fukushima. He's senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Welcome back. Thanks. I'd like to talk a little bit about influence, influence that the Japanese weld in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and influence that maybe the administration or that America exercises here in Tokyo, in right. Japan. Yeah. And it's, it's a big deal. It's not very well, I mean, lobbyists, for example, there are lots of lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. There are very few lobbyists here, mm -hmm. and in fact, it has a bad connotation. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's very interesting. You know, when I was working at USTR back in the 80s, some Japanese businessmen friends of mine in Washington, D.C. told me that as soon as they arrived in Washington, they were inundated by American lawyers, lobbyists, and consultants who wanted to represent them. Mm -hmm. right? By contrast, when American businesses would come to Japan in the 80s or 90s, when I was working here in the 90s, uh, they said, you know, we want to exercise some influence, you know, in the Japanese diet or in the Japanese ministries, and where do we go for that? Yeah. Because most, as you well know, most Japanese companies have that internal into their, in their own organization, so there, there hasn't been an industry, an external industry, that provides that service. Now, that's developed over the last 20 years, and I know you've been centrally involved in this, but in Washington, it is such a developed industry that, you know, whether you're a, a, an American company or a foreign company, small company, large company, as long as you can pay the fees, mm -hmm. you can hire people to represent you. And that, that is a huge difference between Washington and Tokyo. Um, now, you know, as I understand, there, there are some, some uh, developments in Japan that are very interesting, but I guess it shows that, you know, Japan is, is changing and that there, there, are, there is more uh, openness. And um, uh, I guess it, one of it is that it shows that there are more foreign companies that want to exercise influence, but also that the uh, Japanese organizations like the Diet and the ministries are maybe more receptive than in the past to, you know, seeing people who aren't necessarily you know, full-time employees of a company that are mm -hmm. coming to represent uh, their clients. Right. In Washington, D.C., though, mm -hmm. this, this industry, this lobby industry is right. very effective. I mean, if, yes. it's usually if, if you pay, you do receive some benefit for having paid that money. That's right. not always the case here in Japan, right. but, you know, in Washington, D.C., it's a, it's a very refined art. Yeah, and the other thing that's interesting, too, is that the people in Washington, D.C. are very often former government officials mm -hmm. or former members of Congress, whereas in Japan... You know, I have run into some people like that, but right. not that many people who are former, you know, Ministry of International Trade and Industry officials or former Diet members who are open to being, you know, working on, on behalf of foreign clients. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of the times, the trade organizations themselves are actually a, a kind of a lobbying sure. arm. Sure. Whereas Absolutely. here in Japan, yeah. the the people who are working in these trade organizations, they're industry specialists, but they're mm -hmm. not really um, lobbyists. They They really don't relish going and, and knocking on doors and talking to people. Mm -hmm. They like doing what they're doing for their, their members, but sure. the lobbying part is not, not typically a, a, a central part of what they're supposed to be doing. Right, right. 
Fernando, you know, you, you've played such an important role in things like the diet door knock in Japan and trying to make sure that the American business community connects with the, you know, the diet members. So that's, that's very valuable. That, that was a really interesting challenge because it had never been done before. Right. You were, were you president? You were on the board at I that was, time. I uh, was, I think, vice president at the time. Okay. Yeah. And but it you was, had your experience on the diet, so that was right. very helpful. And it was a hard sell. I mean, mm. we had to pitch it and we had to, to kind of show credentials and, and do a, a slow approach. Right. And since then, it's been, you know, for the last 22 years, it's been a, an annual Yeah, event. so I think, as I recall, I may be wrong, but I think, you know, it was as a result of the 93 change where uh, Hosokawa became prime minister. And the first time in 38 years, there was a non-LDP prime minister. And that actually alerted uh, the foreign business community to the notion that maybe it's not only the ministries, but it's also the diet that we should be approaching. And that kind of set the background for the ACCJ. I think Tom Jordan and you and I and a number of others felt we should really try to get some engagement with the the politicians as well as the... Ministries. Well, I remember we went to Washington, D.C. on the D.C. door knock and right. came back mm-hmm. kind of with our tail between our legs because we just got beat up so much. I mean, we went there representing American business in Tokyo, mm-hmm. but people treated us as if we were representing, you know, Japanese interests, you mm-hmm. know, and defending Japan and you should do it this way and not that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Mickey Cantor as USTR, mm. um, it was not a very friendly environment. Mm. <laughs> and and so uh, following up on that, I yep. remember when we came back to Tokyo, right. we just we needed to figure out what can we do. This is a, a really bad environment, and mm. we're going to suffer as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think you know we've uh, all matured yes. <laughs> over the years, and so I think you know the the chamber here and uh, American companies have become much more sophisticated mm-hmm. over the last uh, twenty or so years in um, in trying to exercise influence. I think in Washington D.C., I think my observation is that although there are these American organizations that kind of have a business of lobbying, you know, on behalf of uh, companies, whether they're foreign companies or American companies. Um, Japan itself, in terms of its own presence in Washington, uh, is not as much as it used to be. Back in the 80s, when Japan was such a powerful economic uh, uh, powerhouse, um, at that time, I think uh, the Japanese company, Japanese government, uh, uh, had a lot of uh, financial resources. Mm -hmm. And there was so much attention on Japan even if the Japanese didn't want to draw attention to themselves, they just attracted a lot of attention because their companies are doing so well and, uh, and the economy was really growing. But um, now, when, when I went back to Washington this time in 2012, I, I felt, boy, the presence of Japan had really dropped, especially compared to places like South Korea or China or India and other places in Asia. But I think, uh, you know, thanks to Prime Minister Abe, uh, he has, uh, I think, recognized the importance of trying to uh, enhance Japan's presence in Washington. So I think the uh, Prime Minister's office, the Foreign Ministry, and others have um, devoted some uh, resources, uh, financial and, and personnel, in order to uh, have more Japan-related activities in Washington, mm-hmm. like com- uh, conferences, seminars, symposiums, and so forth. So there's a lot more Japan-related activity now uh, in Washington there, than there was, say, in 2012. Right. Japan chairs as well. Sure. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Getting yep. into the universities, uh, yep. you know, facilitating more kind of budding Japan hands to focus on Japan earlier in their career. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. One of the other things that um, I'd like your, your input on is developing people who can um, facilitate influence. Mm-hmm. Not quite lobbyists, but like lobbyists. Mm-hmm. Here in Japan, as you know, law firms who, in Washington, D.C., on K Street, 
lots of law firms are also, they have a lobbying arm as well. Mm. Whereas here in Japan, very, very rarely do law firms engage in, in lobbying activities, but a few of them are, are starting to practice that. Mm-hmm. But the real key element here is finding people to do that. Mm-hmm. And even if you might pull somebody out who's been a former minister of, of state or even a, a member of the diet or even a staff member of the diet, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they can produce product or actually turn influence into something that's marketable for a client that says, mm-hmm. I need you to help me get mm-hmm. my product off the warehouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, one thought is, uh, you know, if uh, there are people who used to work in the U.S. Gov- uh, Japanese government or Japanese diet, uh, it might actually be interesting to send them to Washington kind of uh, for a training program yes. to, you know, see firsthand how it's done in the United States. Mm-hmm and uh, see if some of those uh, skills can be translated into the Japanese context. There's a lot of tactics and skill and and just know-how, but Mm. the the most critical thing is having a network because without a network, people will be polite to you, they'll they'll have a meeting with you, they'll Mm -hmm. listen to you politely, but nothing happens and the next time you have a call, they're busy. Right, right. Mm. No, I think one of the things that's often said, obviously, about the US and Japan is that uh, human relationships are so important in Japan and I'm sure it's the case in government relations as well, that in the United States, in fact, I was talking to a person, should mention the person's name, but this person was working in Washington, D.C. for four years and then just recently came here representing uh, a, a certain major country, mm-hmm. not the United States. And this person was telling me that in Washington, what this person would do is to give cold calls to uh, people that the person uh, in the newspapers or on TV who are kind of influential on foreign policy issues or, or industrial issues, and just cold call them at various trade associations or at uh, think tanks and meet with them and get to know them and create a network. Whereas in Japan, she's, this woman said that it's so difficult in, in Japan because um, it's, it's hard to kind of cold call somebody and expect that that person is going to immediately meet with you right. and develop a relationship in a short period of time. Sure. I mean, things take a long time here. You've been doing it for a long time. I've been doing it for a long time. And there's still lots of things to learn every day Mm -hmm. as you're trying to develop those relationships. And, you know, exercising influence isn't about getting something for yourself. It's actually, you know, probably more giving something, Mm -hmm. you know, facilitating something Mm -hmm. so that at some point in the relationship, you can come back and say, you know, Mm -hmm. by the way, could I ask you a favor? Sure. Sure. And I suppose, you know, language is always an issue because... um, uh, I mean, it, it's possible to do business in Japan without Japanese, but it makes it harder. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, to, to be able to speak Japanese well enough so that you can actually gain the trust and confidence of Japanese uh, uh, who don't speak English is, is another mm-hmm. um, barrier that needs to be overcome. You know, there is a, a budding industry that's going on here in Japan for mm. um, kind of like lobbyists. Mm-hmm. We don't use lobbyists because it's, a, it's kind of a dirty word. Right. But people who do public policy analysis mm-hmm. and facilitation of uh, public policy issues. Right. Um, okay. And it used to be maybe 15 years ago that if mm. you were doing that, because you've been doing that for a long time, in addition to wearing your hat as a CEO or, or whatever it was that you were doing inside the company or inside the American Chamber of Commerce, um, it didn't support a role for an individual or a team of individuals. Mm-hmm. And um, over time, over the last five years or so, that has changed with the big Fortune 100 companies coming into Japan. Hmm. And they might have a, a single-headed person for legal or for HR. Right. Now they have a single-headed person for public affairs as well. That's great. And that oh. industry is really starting to grow, mm-hmm. mostly with young Japanese who have spent time in one of the ministries or been mm. a diet secretary. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really starting to, um, to bubble up. Mm. That's very encouraging. Yes. It wouldn't have happened, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Right. 
Sure. And when we ran the, the Diet Door Knock 22 mm. years ago, mm -hmm. um, nobody was really familiar with knocking on doors or, mm. or making a presentation to, uh, to Japanese policymakers mm -hmm. uh, in English or in Japanese. There was yep. a lot of fear. And um, the, the, the restrictions of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act yep. also you know, made people think twice about doing anything or making a move mm -hmm. that might be misinterpreted either by their bosses in, in the United States or by right. the Japanese recipients too. Right. Actually, my work, I the one point you touched on just now, uh, very important that often I had to uh, work hard to persuade headquarters that it was important to do some lobbying in Japan because mm -hmm. sometimes the guys back in headquarters in the United States or in Europe would think everything should be a commercial matter. I mean, well, why do you need to talk to some you know a political person? Why do you need to go to a ministry? Why, isn't it a business transaction? Right. Well, it is a business transaction, but often in Japan, uh, it can involve uh, extra business factors. Sure. Well, not only that, but mm. um, it's nice to be invited to go to dinner or to go to a party, but reciprocity is also involved in that. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the expectation is, yes, we're going to invite you and you don't know very much, but come along and we'll teach you. But at some point in time, you need to return that favor. Mm -hmm. And that means that if, if you're not going to pay for it out of your pocket, you know, the, the company mm -hmm. as the beneficiary mm -hmm. should, should pay for that. And then you run into the, the right. restrictions of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of fun in trying to facilitate public policy in Japan. We're going to continue to follow up on this. You should too. Please stay tuned.